All right, so today let's have lecture four, introduction to Homer's Odyssey, books three and four here, slides 56 to 73. Let's get started. So book three, we finally make it away from Ithaca. Recall that the first two books of the Odyssey feature Telemachus, and the first four books are called the Telemachy. And in the first two books, we had Athena in the form of first Mentes uh, give advice to the young Telemachus saying, oh, well, maybe you should call an assembly and go out and search for some information about your father from his friends from Ilion. Go first to Pylos, where Nestor is king. Go second to Sparta, where Menelaus is king. If someone knows something about Odysseus that can help you, whether he is dead, which will allow you to move on, or whether he is alive, which will allow you to um, uh, treat the suitors differently at the very least, um, these are the two men. And so, we had an assembly, didn't go well, and yet Telemachus still got a ship. It was still outfitted, and he took it onto the sea and has made it to now Sandy Pylos. And so Telemachus and Athena, and remember now that Athena is not in the form of Athena, nor in the form of Mentes, who she first showed herself to Telemachus as she is now in the form of Mentor. Remember that Mentor is the man who was left in charge of Odysseus's house when Odysseus was gone, and so this is the second form that Athena takes. Remember also that she took the form of Telemachus in order to recruit several young men to go onto his ship as well. So she took the form first of Mentes, then later of uh, Telemachus, then of Mentor, and she has remained in the form of Mentor during the sea voyage with um, uh, 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 Telemachus to Pylos. In any case, as they reach Pylos, Nestor is giving sacrifice, indicating that he is... Uh, worshiping the gods. And if he's, he is worshiping the gods, probably he is somebody who will embody Xenia. And so we go up to his house, we see the, the smoke rising up from sacrifice, and we think, good, good. Uh, the necessary things are done. Uh, Telemachus and Pesistratos are invited in, they bathe, they get to eat. And then finally Nestor says, who are you? And, well, Telemachus says, I am the son of Odysseus, and he asks about his father. Unfortunately, Nestor doesn't have any information about the father of Odysseus. He does have information about several other Achaeans, in particular Menelaus, who he think might, thinks might have further information. But, like so many journeys, the first place you go is not the last place you will have to go. The first stop on the journey is not the last stop on the journey. This is not going to be quite as easy as it could have been. In any case, Nestor also reveals that Telemachus reminds him a little bit of his father, indicating that even though Telemachus has, for much of his high school age life, his teenage life, thought that he was something of uh, a weakling or somebody who could be cast aside because of how the suitors treated him, when he meets this great man, Nestor, survivor of multiple wars and winner of the greatest war ever to have existed at this time, this man says that uh, you actually remind me of Odysseus. And something about Odysseus is that I have never ever seen a man so openly loved by a god. And that god happens to be a goddess, and that goddess is Athena. And so he says, if you are as beloved of Athena as, <laughs> as Odysseus was, son, you will do just fine in this world. And then, interestingly enough, Athena actually turns into a bird and flies away. And so Nestor looks at him and says, Yeah, I guarantee that you were with Athena and she really likes you, and so you're doing okay, son. Which you should uh, really understand just how different an impression that is that Telemachus receives. He has impressions from his mom, who's now very protective of him because of the loss of her, uh, of her husband. 
He has the suitors who bully him. He must have thought for a good bit of his life that he was not worth much. In fact, even when he's asked who his father was by Athena in the form of Mentes in Book 1, he says, people claim that Odysseus is my father, but who really ever knows his father? And so he has a lot of self-doubt. Nestor is sort of pumping him up here, which is very nice. Well, so Nestor, what does he know about if he doesn't know anything uh, about the whereabouts of Odysseus? Well, he says... Menelaus was blown off by a mighty storm after the argument with Agamemnon about whether to sacrifice Hecdooms or not. Apparently Agamemnon was right in this case, Menelaus wrong. But Diomedes made it home, Idomeneus made it home, though very sadly sacrificed his son upon seeing him on the uh, coast, and then would later have to leave Crete because of that. Philoctetes, who we met, who uh, killed Paris, made it home. Nestor, of course, made it home, and Neoptolemus. Uh, made it home, though uh, Neoptolemus has also run into some trouble since he he made it home. Uh, I think you should keep it, or rather, he is going to run into some trouble very soon. We will actually uh, um, see the person he is supposed to marry, and then I will tell you who she was supposed to marry before him, and how that's going to lead to a love triangle that will result in death. In any case, Nestor then tells the story of Agamemnon. When Agamemnon made it home, it was apparently the case that Clytemnestra, his wife, harboring resentment at him for sacrificing their daughter Iphigenia while lying to her about the fact that she was supposed to be married to Achilleus. That was the lie. Uh, what actually happened is she was going to be sacrificed to get favorable winds to send the Athenians to Troy. And, well, Clytemnestra never forgave Agamemnon for that lie, for sacrificing their daughter rather than marrying her to Achilles, the most eligible bachelor imaginable. Um, like, almost literally imaginable, because he is a character from a story, right? So he exists in the imagination. And so, uh, and, and he is tall and strong and the son of a goddess, and beautiful, and a musician, and a great athlete, and a killer, and nearly invincible, and uh, never beaten once until he died. It's like, yeah, that's about as good as you can imagine. Maybe Heracles is a little bit better. He is the ultimate, ultimate hero. But he doesn't have an epic like Achilles, so there it is. In any case, Clytemnestra was very resentful of her husband Agamemnon after that event. Agisthos, who was the son of Thyestes, who was the man supplanted by Agamemnon for the seat of Mycenae, or, or excuse me, for the kingship of Mycenae. Well, Agisthos wanted what was his father's, uh, Thyestes's, and so he seduced Clytemnestra, and then Clytemnestra and Agisthos went Agamemnon came home, colluded together to kill Agamemnon. In fact, uh, very sadly, we'll hear from Agamemnon in Book 11 that apparently, uh, according to Homer, it was Clytemestra herself who did the deed, not Agesilus, and that she was so callous about it that she refused to close his eyes after he was dead or close his mouth. And so he's just sitting there with a horrifying death face. And, well, that's what he says. In any case... Nestor says, so I know about what happened to Agamemnon, and I know about what happened to my other friends, but I don't know about the person you really care about, Odysseus. So this is what I can do for you. I have my youngest son here. He's still unwed. His name is Pisistratus. Uh, why don't you stay here for the night, and then I'll send you in a chariot or on, a, uh, or on another ship over to Menelaus. Um, excuse me. Telemachus will choose the chariot option. They'll go overland to avoid the risk of pirates, though there are thieves and bandits at this time because there, there, are no, there are no laws, essentially, and there are no police officers in the wilderlands. And so Pacistratos and Telemachus, after resting the night, will take a chariot 
Uh, they'll make a quick stop before they get to Sparta, and then they will move on to Sparta. And that's Sparta. We have quite a bit that we'll learn. Ah, yes, just something I'm quickly going to mention here is that books three and four are going to show you, in opposition to books one and two, what Xenia should look like. Nestor and Menelaus are going to invite in these young men. They're going to feed them. They're going to bathe them. They're going to ask their names after they have done this sort of thing. They will give them a place to stay, and they will offer them guest gifts, in fact. Uh, very famous guest gifts will be uh, offered to Telemachus by Helen in particular. She will offer him, and imagine what you would think of this, a wedding robe for his future wife. And given her success with marriage, three husbands, one twice, uh, you, you might question whether that would be a cursed or a blessed item from Helen. That said, I don't know, I might take anything from Helen, but then again, I just don't know, because there might be some cursed items. Hard to say. In any case, he provides, uh, Nestor provides horses and a chariot, Telemachus and Pisistratus take a trip together, and uh, I, I sort of say this just to be sort of funny, but it is not uh, entirely clear whether this is <laughs> Telemachus's first friend or not. We don't see him interacting so much with the young men of Ithaca. Now, I would imagine he had some friends there, and he did supposedly have to help in the recruiting of the men for his ship. But this is the first time that he's really traveling around with a single companion. This is, Pesistratos is to him, uh, I would imagine at this moment, sort of like what Diomedes was to his father. And so, we make it to book four, we make it to Sparta. And so we're going to go into a little bit greater detail. Here, because the stories are uh, a little bit more detailed and interesting. So, the last part of the Telemachy, the final book, book four, the longest of the books of the Telemachy, involves several stories. And recall I told you that this is a story about telling stories, but then also remember the Iliad is a story about telling stories as well. Recall uh, when Achilles was so angry, it was Phoenix who told him a story about a man who waited too long to get gifts, Recall also that when Agamemnon returned to the fighting, or excuse me, when Achilles made amends with Agamemnon, it was Agamemnon who told a story about how delusion first came down to man. And that even when Priam came to see Achilles, Achilles said, you should eat, because I remember this story about Niobe, who lost all her children and yet still ate. So here we will start to see the encyclopedic nature of the Odyssey. We will see several stories within stories. And so... As Telemachus and Pisistratos approach Sparta, a great, a great feast is being held for the wedding of Menelaus's two children. Now, something interesting here. The two children are Megapenthes and Hermione. Yes, if you're a Harry Potter fan, that's straight up where the intelligent Gryffindor uh, girl from the trio of protagonists came. That is Hermione, or Hermione, or excuse me, not Hermione, but rather or Hermione if you really, really want to hit those notes. In any case, Hermione is the only legitimate child of both Helen and Menelaus. Helen is barren now. She will never have another child, so she cannot have a male heir for Menelaus. And so if he wants to pass Sparta and all his vast wealth and holdings onto somebody, he needs to have a son. Well, he did have a son, and his name is Megapenthes. And he had that son with a slave girl, which would have been common practice at this time in order to get some sort of male heir. He would have then adopted him to make him legitimate. Wouldn't have been that formal process at this time. In any case, Megapenthes is marrying Elector's daughter. We don't even get her name. And Hermione is marrying, ah, surprise, surprise, Neoptolemus, of all people, the son of Achilles. Something interesting about Neoptolemus here is at this time, 
he still has a concubine that he took from Troy. Her, uh, her name is um, uh, Andromache. If anybody remembers who Andromache was, she was the wife of Hector. Hector, who was killed by Neoptolemus' father. And so that's sort of interesting. There is a play called the Neoptolemus that uh, figures, uh, or excuse me, I think it's called the Neoptolemus. Yes, no, I'm, for, I'm forgetting words. Called the Neoptolemus, where actually uh, Hermione wants to have uh, Andromache killed because of her vast beauty. In any case, what we see what's happening here is a wedding. And a wedding is a highly civil thing to happen. Recall the Shield of Achilles. There's a city at war, there's a city at peace. What's happening in the city at peace, besides a murder trial? A wedding, of course. It's about the most civil thing that can possibly happen. When you get these two organic creatures together to then subject themselves to law and then behave a certain way for the rest of their lives, that's a very odd thing to happen. You don't see birds doing that sort of thing. Um, and you don't see all humans doing that sort of thing. You see fewer and fewer Americans doing that sort of thing, sadly enough. In any case, we do get to see that thing here. And so... As the two men approach, there's a small gaffe that happens. A gaffe is when somebody does something um, asocially or unsocial or, or makes a mistake in a social context. Etionius. Now this Etionius, he thinks he's being helpful, but he's not really. And so what he does is he approaches the two men and then he comes up to Menelaus and he says, Menelaus, we're, we're in the middle of the, you know, two wedding feasts right now. We're about to have weddings. We're very busy. Do we have the time and resources to, to take in these guests? And Menelaus gets very upset. He says, uh, Has it ever been the case that we, during our seven years in Egypt, had to receive hospitality from someone else? Of course. Are we lacking in goods? No. You have been no fool before, Etionius. He actually says that to him. Uh, bring these men in. And so Edionius is trying to think about the practicalities. He thinks, we're doing things. Uh, we're already spending a lot of money. We don't know if we have time for these people. Menelaus says, that's absurd. You honor the Zinnia no matter what. It doesn't matter whether it's a good time or not. These people are travelers on the road. We need to bring them in. We have so much. Why would we not do this? And so there's almost a gap, but it doesn't end up occurring. Apparently, Menelaus is highly civil, very much cares about the Zinnia and has that strong reprimand of him, 432 to 35. In any case, Telemachus and Pesistratos, as we expect, are then bathed and fed before ever revealing their names. Zinnia has been tight here. Very good. All right, so Menelaus starts to speak. And so remember, these two young men have not yet revealed their names, so he's probably pretty curious about who they are. And Menelaus is no slouch. He's pretty smart, pretty sharp, pretty sharp-eyed. And, you know, he has a chance to look over uh, this Telemachus guy. You want to keep in mind that the nobles at this time would look very different from the commoners. They'd be taller. They'd be stronger. They'd be more attractive. They'd be better spoken by far. And so, this guy definitely looks like a noble. And, well, if you're a noble, you have to have a noble father. And so, who is his father? And, well, you know, when Menelaus just looks at his eyes and looks at his hands... And even looks at his feet, because remember they wear sandals, so they have exposed feet. He's like, man, there's something about this guy that reminds me of some guy I've known before. He starts to think, maybe this is, maybe this is Odysseus's son. We don't get what he thinks about Pesistratos, but maybe he looks like, uh, maybe he looks like Nestor. Probably he does. In any case, he speaks of how he attained all his vast wealth. Uh, one thing you should keep in mind is that when Pesistratos and, and uh, Telemachus walk into this house, Nestor's rich. Not as rich as Menelaus, 
Um, and uh, Telemachus comes from Ithaca. Ithaca is a craggy island rock, essentially. It is a decent kingdom, but nowhere near as wealthy as Sparta. So when he looks up, he's like, wow, look at all this gold, look at all this silver, look at all this cobalt. It's like, this must be like how the gods live. This must be like the house of Zeus. Menelaus actually picks that up, and uh, opposite from being hubristic, he is very humble. He says, no, no, no. The things of the gods are far finer than what I have, which is perishable and will pass away. No, no, Zeus has a much finer pa palace than this. And it's like, wow, I wonder how nice it could be. In any case, he says... As vastly wealthy as I am, I would give away two-thirds of my wealth. If only I could have my dead friends back, especially my brother, because I acquired this wealth during seven years of travels, and during which time I went to Cyprus, Phoenicia, uh, Egypt, Libya, these are African places, Ethiopia, Rimbal, Sidonia. I went all over. But all these experiences, all this wealth, all this time, I would give it all back I could just have the things that I really, truly valued, my friends. He's, so you might say that Midas, who is very famous for having the golden touch and was given the ears of an ass afterwards by Dionysus when it was taken away from him, you might say that he was quite the opposite from Menelaus. Whereas Midas valued money and gold above all things in an avaricious or greedy way, like Scrooge McDuck or actual Scrooge from the Christmas Carol, since we're getting to that time of year, Menelaus seems to have his heart in the right place. does not value wealth over time, and friendship, and family. And, well, he's very sad about that sort of thing. And so, uh, as I said, Telemachus mentions, hey, sister, just look how much bronze there is, and how it shines everywhere. It'd be like going to Las Vegas for the first time, you might imagine, except for it's actually a nice place. He says it must be like the gods. Menelaus overhears him and says, no mortal could rival Zeus, as I said. He still calls them children. Um, <laughs> that's kind of interesting. Later, Odysseus will also refuse the comparison to a god multiple times. So that's true. And so that is the theme of hubris versus fear of the gods, or hubris versus humility. Humans who think that they are above the laws of the gods tend to uh, encounter problems, like Aya Lesser, who thought that he survived the shipwreck of his companions because of his own wits and skill. No, Poseidon had helped him, so then when he yelled at the gods, I, Aya Lesser, cannot be killed even by the gods, Poseidon used his trident to then strike the rock he was hanging on to and send him down to the bottom of the sea, where he, of course, died. And so, if you are hubristic, if you try to break the laws of the gods in the Odyssey, you will pay a price. If you are humble and obey the laws, you have the best chance you possibly have of being successful. Uh, but as a mortal, you'll still probably die at some point. In any case, as I was saying, though I have much and have acquired many things from many exotic places, experiences, and uh, actual physical wealth. His brother was killed, Menelaus' brother was killed, while he collected that wealth of experiences and physical wealth, and it no longer gives him pleasure. So he would give up two-thirds of it to have his friends now dead at Troy back as well as his brother. Uh, students sometimes ask why two-thirds rather than three-thirds. Why not all of it? Because he still needs some money so that he's not a beggar, so that he doesn't have to beg from his friends, which I think is an interesting sort of note. He still needs enough to be self-sufficient so that he can be an actual friend to his friends rather than a uh, vassal or servant to them. In any case, Menelaus then says, well, you've probably heard all of this from your fathers, though, because his Kleos is enormous. It reaches the heavens. Everybody knows about Menelaus and what happened with him and Helen and the ten-year-long war called the Trojan 
war during that, an age that will be called the Age of Heroes. He says, but you know, for all my friends I've lost, for even including my brother, the person I miss most is Odysseus, which is kind of bizarre to us, because we know how much that he liked his brother from uh, the Iliad. We know also he obviously likes Odysseus quite a bit, but we didn't know he liked him this much. And in fact, when he mentions Odysseus' name, Telemachus begins to weep. And that's precisely when Menelaus is like, why would, why would this kid, why would this young nobleman who just showed up in my house start crying when I mention the name Odysseus? Well, hmm, hmm. well, now I see his feet, his hands, the glances of his eyes. Perhaps I'm starting to connect things together. Perhaps, perhaps this, this young man, disguised by my ignorance, is the son of Odysseus. And that's when Menelaus starts to think, should I ask him? Or should I let him reveal himself to me? And so one of the themes here is disguise versus revelation. Uh, we will see Odysseus in several disguises in several ways. We'll see him disguised by mist. Uh, we'll see mist disguising things multiple times. We'll see him actually physically transformed into an old beggar back on Ithaca as well. And we will also see times when he takes his time to reveal himself. And will also disguise himself with words, a disguise with words, which is untrue, is called a lie as well. In any case, Menelaus decides, let's let this Telemachus reveal himself. And yet, something else, another major theme, at least from this book that we run into here, is the relationship between Menelaus and Helen. They do not seem to be sharing one mind. In fact, in the Odyssey, marriage is a very major uh, theme. We ran into it for the first time here. Uh, of course, the suitors are also trying to marry Penelope. Penelope, as she's still married to Odysseus, doesn't know whether to marry the suitors or not. Telemachus is himself getting to marriageable age. In fact, Neoptolemus, who is exactly the same age as Telemachus, is himself getting married to Menelaus' daughter. We will see, we've seen that uh, Calypso, the sea nymph, wants to marry Odysseus. Soon, Odysseus will go to a new land, Scoria, where a young woman named Nausicaa, after he takes a bath, will want to marry him again. He'll then even yet meet another woman who wants to keep him around for some time called Circe. And so marriage, marriage, marriage. We're going to see all sorts of marriage here. And we'll even hear quotes about marriage. Like a good marriage where one mind is shared between both is the greatest of things one can have. I believe we'll actually see that down in the underworld right after or right before Agamemnon says that women for all time have been disgraced by the actions of Clytemnestra, his wife. You can see that he's still pretty resentful about what happened. In any case, Helen descends. Menelaus has just introduced himself to these young men. They have not yet introduced themselves, and he started to tell them some stories about who he is and where they are, though he assumes that they uh, know who he is uh, without him saying. Well, Helen descends, and you can only imagine how beautiful she looks. She has her coterie of ladies around her, and she is elegant upon elegant. And, well, she immediately points out, without reflection, that this man looks just like Odysseus. So, even though Menelaus had uh, sort of subtly, um, uh, not wanting to put too harsh a point on it, wondered, should I let this kid reveal himself, or should I out him? Well, I'll let him reveal himself. Well, Helen, without even thinking, takes the opposite tack. And that, that might show that she and Menelaus, they're just not on the same page with things. Now, they obviously didn't discuss how to engage in this interaction, but they had very different instincts. And so I think if you really look closely at this book, you'll see that there are some, very much some cracks in the pottery of their relationship 
and uh, there are cracks that may widen rather than um, uh, diminish over time. And so Menelaus agrees, and as I've been saying, he says the glances, eyes, hands, and head of this Telemachus look just like Odysseus. And then Pisistratus, showing that he is uh, the son of Nestor and has some wisdom and cunning, takes this opportunity with Odysseus's name being in the air to say, well, do you know about Odysseus? Do you know where he is? We actually happen to come here from a long way off, uh, this young man, especially from Ithaca, then to Pylos, Mount Sparta, just to find this information. And so since we're all introduced, could you tell us? And so Menelaus, first and foremost, expresses great love for Odysseus. He says, well, Odysseus, well, as I told you earlier, I really like this guy. In fact, I love him, and I would love to just empty Ithaca out and bring Odysseus and all his people here and have him I build him a house and have him be my neighbor. Though I, I think he would be subject to Menelaus at that time, so Odysseus would certainly not agree to those terms. He likes his own land. But Menelaus is saying, I would love to just build a house right next to this one so I can hang out with Odysseus all the time. You are in a house where your father is loved. You are in a house where you are loved. And so um, then, <laughs> sadly, uh, all these men start thinking about all the time and all the people that they've lost. Uh, Telemachus starts to cry for the father that he's never known. Pesistratos starts to cry for the brother that he never knew who died at Troy at the hands of Memnon. Recall that was Antilochus, the man who held the hands of Achilles just to later be killed by the hands of the man who would be killed by Achilles, Memnon. And then also Menelaus, of course, cries for Agamemnon and uh, possibly for many, many other people as well. Um, Pesistratos then speaks in beautiful language, and asks after tales of his father, and yet I can have no objection to tears for any mortal who dies and goes to his destiny. But then, Helen decides it's time to put away the tears. We've cried for too long. It is good to cry when something bad happens, or when you lose somebody for a time. But you can't do it forever. You have to do things like eat, and go plow, and fight. And so, uh, well, you know, after dinner, let's not cry. And so, Helen apparently has learned some tricks from priests in Egypt during her seven years there. And one of these tricks seems to be uh, a little bit of chemistry. She knows, how, which is what cooking is, by the way. It is a, a basic form of chemistry, depending on uh, how complex the cooking is. It can be more than basic. Helen takes a little drug. It's a plant. It's called Nepenthe in the Greek. It's called heart's ease in our translation. She puts it in the drink, and apparently it's a mellower. It does. Uh, it's an alex. It's an anxiolytic or an alexa or not an alexapharmic, an analgesic. There we go. It limits anxiety and pain. And so the the description of it is: after these men drink it, even if their father were to have died in front of them that very day, they would still not cry. So it's a very very strong drug. And again, we will see a lot of drugs um, being used and misused in the Odyssey. We'll see the Lotus steals the homecoming of men. We'll see alcohol lead to a man going, or a cyclops going blind, and leading to the death of another man. And uh, also we see it here. These are the things in the world. So says the Odyssey. Hmm. In any case, now Helen and Menelaus are going to tell contrasting stories. And I want you to notice, too, the two differing perspectives they take on these stories. I want you to notice at first that Helen's story is going to emphasize how she helped the Achaeans. I want you also to notice that there's an element within the story that makes Helen look a little bit 
uh, like how you might expect Helen to be. Uh, but I should be more specific than that. There's an element in the story showing that Helen might not be the most faithful wife to any man. I'll include that in a moment. And then Menelaus will share a story where he shows Helen not sympathetic to the Achaeans, but rather to the Trojans. The idea, and part of the idea of this book, is that her nature, like the old man of the sea, is protean, always changing. We can never pin down Helen. She, like Aphrodite, uh, it's always unclear exactly what it is she loves. And so, here's the story. Odysseus, in disguise, disfigured himself, ripped his hair, ripped his clothes, put rags on, went in the form of an old man and beggar into Troy. And there in Troy, he was spotted by Helen. And the reason he was in there was to get the information necessary to steal the Palladium later with Diomedes, because Helenus, the prophet who he had abducted, had told him he needed to do that in order for the Achaeans to defeat Troy. Now, Helen spotted him. Remember, she's very sharp-eyed, so sharp-eyed she even identified Aphrodite, who was in disguise in Book 3 of the Iliad. And she actually calls him out. And somehow, some way, and this would be an excellent story or play, he talks his way out of it. He somehow manages to convince everybody, no, I'm just a beggar, I'm not actually Odysseus, I don't know what this crazy woman is talking about. Well, she then has this beggar come up to her room, alone, and she gives him a bath. Yes, that is very much supposed to make you uh, arch your eyebrows and say, what happened in there? And it's like, that is one of the open questions. What did happen in there? Did Helen and Odysseus share a romantic moment? Possibly. Do we know? No. But could it have happened, and did she very much talk about it right in front of her husband and in front of the son of the man that she maybe had a romantic moment with? Yes. Is this probably very awkward for everybody involved? Yes. Yes, absolutely. But then she finishes the story by saying, He then made me swear not to tell anybody that Odysseus had infiltrated, and I helped to strategize with him how to get the Palladium. So she says, even though I did a couple things that maybe we uh, don't approve of, I'm a Kian positive, so you should like me. Well, Menelaus then responds, and he says, yeah, you know, that's a funny story you tell there, Helen. Because I remember when I was inside the Trojan horse a little bit after that time. and I was there, Diomedes was there, Odysseus was there, Neoptolemus was there, and there was even this guy, Antiochus, loudmouth, who was there. And you came out with your then new husband, Deiphobos. You see that little barb that he has in there? He came out with Deiphobos, the man that she's cheating on Menelaus with at that time, the second man. And yet you knew this little trick. I mean, you're just such a magical person. You're not only beautiful and the daughter of a goddess, but what you did was you, you could speak out to each man in the voice of his wife. So remember, these men, they can't see outside of the Trojan horse. They're totally trapped. But each one of them hears Odysseus, hears Penelope, Diomedes, hears Aegealia, Menelaus, hears Helen, <laughs> or no one, <laughs> I'm just kidding. And uh, then Antiochus hears his wife, and he, he's the weak link. He's the one that's like, no, no, it's actually my wife. It's actually my wife. It's like in the movies. You've probably seen a zombie movie where somebody's like wife or mom gets turned into a zombie, and then the boy or husband is like, no, she's still real. She's not a zombie like everyone around me. Has everybody seen some sort of movie like that? Probably. Yes. And then they go towards the zombie, and the zombie either attacks and kills them, or a friend kills the zombie beforehand. Yeah. In any case, it's the same sort of situation. And close to like, that is my wife out there. It's not an obvious trick by the Trojans. How did she get across the sea? 
I don't know, but the gods can do many things, and she's there, and I need to go. And Odysseus supposedly grabbed him by the face and muzzled him. And said, you fools, don't get us, do not get us killed. And so Odysseus, even within the Trojan horse, was very useful because he kept Antiochus from giving up their disguise, which would have been uh, death for every single one of them. Hmm. Well, after this story, it's time for bed. And I just want you to notice those contrasting perspectives between these two. In any case, next time we have a chance to talk, Telemachus explains what's going on at home. He says, well, the reason that I'm out here looking for information about my father is that without my father here, over the last three years, these young, impudent, insolent men called the suitors, 108 of them, have showed up in my house and are eating all of our food, mistreating our serving women by laying with them, and also mistreating my mother and, and also mistreating me. Uh, they will not leave. They demand my mother's hand, even though uh, they are no longer giving gifts, but rather taking gifts. And, of course, the convention of this time was you give bridal gifts for a bride. The better gifts you get, the better bride you get. And that was the idea. And, uh, well, now, rather than giving gifts, these men are just taking. And so this is very against the Zinnia. And they're essentially stealing, not just from Odysseus, but potentially if Telemachus is now a man and Odysseus is dead, they are stealing directly from Telemachus, from right in front of him, which is uh, mind-blowing. In any case, Menelaus says, he tries to assure Telemachus, he says, okay, I understand, you're in a bad situation, you need info about Odysseus. Well, I'll tell you what I was told by a god who cannot lie, who I had to catch. And so we're all like, a god who cannot lie, who you had to catch. There must be some story behind that. And Menelaus says, yeah, there's a story behind that. All right, and so we'll very quickly go through this. I think this is actually the, yes, good. Two more slides. So, this is the story, and this is the last story of the day, and this is the most interesting and bizarre story. Menelaus says, he acquired information about Odysseus from a god. That god is called Proteus, old man. See, the adjective that I used earlier to describe Helen, Protean means changeable. Why does the word Protean mean changeable? Because Proteus has an ability to alter his appearance into anything. In fact, uh, very oddly, this is what happened. So, Menelaus was trying to escape from Egypt and make it back home. Yes. But then, an island right off of Egypt that he got to, the wind started blowing against him, and so he was stuck there for 20 days. And he starts to think he's never, ever going to get away from there. Same thing day after day after day after day. Finally, a goddess named Adothia, who is the daughter of Proteus, takes pity on him and says, if you're ever going to escape from here... You're going to have to get under the skins of one of the seals that my father loves. My father, Proteus, comes out of the sea every day, and he likes to bask in the sun with the seals. So you're going to have to catch three of those seals, kill them, I guess, put that skin on top of you, endure the smell. She'll actually give them ambrosia for their nose because it smells so bad under seal skin. And uh, then you have to catch my father. He's going to turn into a bunch of things. He's going to turn into like a lion and a serpent and a tree and water. And fire, all sorts of weird things. And, well, you have to hold on. <laughs> because the truth has many forms. And after he gives up transforming, then he'll finally say, What do you want? <laughs> I'll tell you whatever you want. And that's what happens. Menelaus catches Proteus and he says, Okay, well, you, you want some info from me. What do you want to know? And Menelaus asks the man, Well, how do I get home? He says, Well, you have to go back to Egypt and you have to raise enough money to sacrifice multiple hecatombs. It's going to take you a long time. And so he hears what he wants to know, but it's not what he wants to know. 
Or rather, he hears what he needs to hear, but it's not what he wants to hear in this case. And so he also hears this sad fact. Odysseus is alive, but he is trapped on an immense island named uh, Calypso. And so what we have now heard up to this point is that Odysseus is alive, but he is very much trapped by a goddess, which means he is uh, tantamount to dead. He is similar to dead. It's like he is in a special super prison somewhere that he may never get out of. And yet, if it's Odysseus, and if, it's, and if he's alive, as we saw in that Trojan horse scenario, he's got a chance. And if there's a chance, well, one small light illuminates the darkness. In any case, the Telemachy ends with a brief look back at Ithaca. So, book four, I, I'm sure you noticed this point, and it's such an interesting, sad note. We go back to Ithaca, and there at Ithaca, we see the suitors are very upset to learn that Telemachus has actually made it off of Ithaca. They didn't even notice that he was gone. And they hear from a man who need, from Noemon, the man who needs his ship back, it's like, when is Telemachus bringing his ship back? And, and, and Tele, or not Antilochus, excuse me, Antinoa saying, Eurymachus say, what, he's gone? He actually made it? And Antinous decides to take a crew of people on a ship and to hide behind a rock near Ithaca in order to ambush Telemachus when he gets back. And so you can see the suitors now perceive Telemachus not just as some uh, young man to be bullied, but now as an actual threat to themselves. And so their perception of them, him has changed, and now they are actively attempting to kill him, though they are attempting to do this secretly. And then the last thing we see, and this is so sad, you see this multiple times throughout the text. We see Penelope, thinking of Odysseus, weep and cry herself to sleep. She also does find out from uh, Eurycleia that her son has left her, and now she undoubtedly makes the connecting thoughts that just as her husband died on the sea, surely will her son die on the sea. And so she gets to fall asleep crying, and will probably have such dreams as those. Thus ends the Telemachy.